This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I'm speaking with Molly Olapini, who is the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project. Molly, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. So thank you for being on the show. Um, I know that we are going to end this 25 minutes or so, having learned a lot more about um, something that from from what you described to me when we spoke earlier and from what I've read online is a really exciting project that that you're looking to, I think, grow and, and spread the word about that's having, uh, obviously through its name, a global impact in the world, in the community of uh, autism spectrum disorder. So, Molly, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved uh, with developing this project? Sure, absolutely. My name is Molly Olapini. I'm the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project. And about 16 years ago, I was somebody who had one-year experience working with kids with autism um, when I was asked by a family to move to Ghana with them. And so, you know, how I got involved with the project is I founded the project. But um, what they, when they asked me to move to Ghana with them, I was thinking it would be for a few months, possibly a year, and that what my role would be would really be working with this one child, and then I would go home having had this cool experience in West Africa. The reality was much different. When I got there, people started coming to the house where I was living, the school where I was working, the gym where I was occasionally working out, looking for the lady who knew what autism was. Hmm. And through some of those people, I came to know what was and wasn't available locally. And I learned that the locally accepted belief um, about autism and what causes autism and about these children is that they are taken by bad spirits or um, that that they're possessed, actually. And so, you know, my initial thought was, okay, great, we'll get a bunch of people here, we'll do some training, it'll be fine, you know, we'll work directly with the kids. And then I realized that that wasn't going to be sustainable. I wasn't going to be spending the rest of my life in Ghana. Um, And so I met a woman who had started an autism center, which was very exciting and tremendous relief. And I began volunteering there. I just began spending my free time going to the center every chance I had um, and just getting to know them a lot um, and realized really quickly that getting random foreigners in to work with these kids wasn't going to help. It wasn't going to build capacity. It wasn't going to do anything to reduce the stigma um, around autism. And so the model of the Global Autism Project was really born from that experience, this idea of doing with people rather than for people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's predicated on the basic idea that the best people to work with kids with autism in Ghana are Ghanaians. Um, in Kenya or Kenyans, in India or Indian people, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So, so that's, that's a little bit about the organization and how we got started. So it really started organically. And had you been working with this, with this child, um, in what capacity were you working with, with the individual that you ended up moving to Ghana with? Yeah, so this was pre-RBT credential, which mm-hmm. is what I would have been. Um, but at the time, it was called um, an ABA therapist. So it was just applied behavior analysis therapist, is what I was called. Okay. And how old was and I loved it? Was it was he was it a girl or a boy child? He was a little boy. He was six at the time. Six year old boy. Okay. So that's how you founded the the project. 
where did you how did it grow did did it did it grow by way of word of mouth and country by country and and also where are you, where is the project now how how many how many countries are you sort of touching i guess for lack of a better word or impacting yeah yeah so you know what's interesting is when i started the organization way back in it started in 03 um and by 04 you know we we created this sort of 7 minute info video kind of what we're doing and in it, I hear this little voice that I, I almost recognize as my own saying, we're going to start in Ghana and go all over the world. Like, how hard could this be? You know, mm-hmm. I can now tell you 16 years in how hard that could be. And I don't know where on earth that that grandiose vision came from at that point in my life. Um, but it did it did start to grow sort of through word of mouth. Um, we worked exclusively in Ghana for about eight years. We learned a lot about what to do. We learned a lot about what not to do. And around 2009, 2010-ish, um, we started, people started reaching out and asking for support. One of the first inquiries that we received was from Kenya, and around that same time was a site in Chandigarh, India. Um, and so it just started growing in that way. How it grows today is absolutely through word of mouth. Um, we're probably best known for our Skill Corps program, where professionals who work in the field dedicate two weeks of their lives to try, it's about closer to three, honestly, with orientation of their lives to train with us, travel with us. Um, and when they're doing their fundraising, everyone's required to raise money. That actually spreads the word about our project quite a lot. So now I would say the most inquiries we get tend to come from social media, honestly. I saw you on Instagram. I saw you on, on Facebook. Um, but back in the day, it was, it was sort of a whisper campaign and word of mouth. Okay. Um, and, and many of the best things are, and they, they work that way because honestly, yeah. I mean, people always say, you know, word of mouth is, is great advertising. One of the reasons why they say that is because if, if something isn't good or it isn't having a personal impact, you're much less likely to recommend it or talk about it with somebody Absolutely. else. So, so I think that's, Absolutely. that's, um, that's got to be good feedback for you. Um, I know that you just mentioned the Skill Corps program. How many people do you see coming through that program now on an annual basis? And this, and, and describe it a little bit. I know, I know the basics. I know people have to fundraise themselves, and they do, which is also a compelling um, aspect of, of the project yeah, in order to, to do this for uh, a series of weeks. But tell us, like, how many people are doing this, and what what do they learn, and what do they take away? Where do they go after? Like, give us a little more detail on, on Skill Corps. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so Skill Corps is, as the name implies, skilled professionals who travel with us. And you're absolutely right. Everybody who travels with us raises $5,000 and purchases their own plane ticket. So that just, I think, speaks to the level of commitment and dedication that people have to this work. Um, most people who travel with us have heard of us, you know, from either a podcast like this or they've read an article or, you know, our name has sort of come up. They've seen us at a conference, things like that. Um, and they're really, you know, once they're traveling with us, they're really, they're all in and they're dedicated and they're passionate and they, and they do it. And, you know, it's like I said, people who work in the field, we actively recruit for professional diversity. So we have RBTs working alongside BCBAs who have, you know, 20 years of experience. Um, and what we find is that when we're in a new culture, when we're in a new place, Sometimes it's the people who have the least experience who are the most helpful when it comes to really being able to train and convey some of these newer ideas. In terms of where they go, uh, these are a lot of people continue with our organization. Uh, they travel 
I, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think it's roughly about 30% of people travel on at least a second trip. I have some people who've done seven, eight, nine trips. Mm. We have about 300 people annually who travel. We travel in three separate times of the year, um, Feb, July, and October currently, and about 300. So the program has grown in the last, I would say, year and a half. It's, it has tripled in size, actually. So it has really grown exponentially. We currently have about 600 alums who are, who are out in the world making the world a better place. And, you know, it's an interesting question in terms of, of where do people go. They, some people obviously continue traveling with us and doing things with us. Um, other people, you know, go back to their jobs that they have. And they, what I really love about it, something that we had not intended when we built Skillcore, is this beautiful unintended consequence of creating clinicians who are a little more collaborative, um, they listen before they share their ideas. They, um, they've learned how to work in another culture, and they're able to bring those skills back and make their workplace better. We also have a number of employers who support their, um, their staff members participating in the program. So either the employer purchases the plane ticket, they give them extra PTO, they sometimes match their donations fundraising, because what employers have found is that when they're able to provide this opportunity for their staff, not only are they learning incredible skills because they're, they're in a consultative model when they're traveling um, and they're learning to collaborate, but they're also, they're also really dedicated to your place of work, <laughs> their own place of work, because that employer supports that balance for them and supports them in something that they're passionate about. So we have a number of people also who travel with us. And then if they switch jobs, they tell that new job from the beginning, this is something that I do. Are you okay with it? And more and more employers, I think, are starting to see the value in what it is that we do. And they're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely okay with that program, you know, participate all the way. So yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. I love the, the fact that outside of the, um, that you're seeing that, that unintended consequence, which is a great one. Um, sometimes yeah, taking, yeah. taking yourself out of the sort of typical context that you find yourself in as an, and you know, uh, a professional in the field and applying the skills you know in a completely different setting does lead to that um, that that stuff that really can't be taught in a classroom, you know, high school right. or college or even a yeah. training room. You kind of have to live it to realize, wait, wait, this is so much bigger right. than me. I don't know everything there is to know. So I love that that's yeah. having that impact. That that's great, and that is yeah. a that is a really significant way to impact the um, the entire field. Uh, we're yeah, gonna I love that about it. And, and has that happened for you? Do you feel like you have, have you changed over the 16 years? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the short answer, the short answer is yes. You know, I think I have, that being said, I have held on to my idealism. I've held on to that little voice that's ever starting gone and go all over the world. You know, mm -hmm. like how hard can it be? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I have, you know, I have, I have learned so much. I have learned so much about what to do. I've learned so much about what not to do. That's why we've created the, we call it the do with, not for movement. It's just based on our experience. You know, it's based on, it's based on, um, you know, learning, learning what not to do is such a powerful lesson if you're willing to hear it. 
Um, and that's, you know, people look at our model and they go, oh, that's really smart. How'd you think of that? I'm like, we didn't think this, this was co-created with our partners all over the world. Right, right, right. And it is, it is a, it is a very specific, um, purposeful way to do things. Um, and, and I think that that's, again, with limited resources, you can't get to every single country the first day. You can't get right. to every single family, but you can leave a lasting right. impression and a lasting understanding that people in those countries can do more on their own. And that's the way to leave a, a real legacy. So good job. Okay. Thank Molly Ola Penny from Global Autism Project. We are going to take a quick break and come right back and talk a little bit more about the program. This is Thank one. You. This is one in fifty nine. The weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Have you driven by Anderson Center for Autism? Have you ever wondered what we're all about? Well, we're a state-of-the-art educational program. We're a nurturing home away from home. We're a community resource. We're a training center for people from all corners of the globe. We're a deeply devoted family of professionals who utilize evidence-based practices to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And we're here for you. Call us today at 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org to learn more. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm speaking today with Molly Ola Penny, who is the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project. Um, Molly, we've talked for the first half of the show about the Global Autism Project, some of your background, what brought you to Ghana in the first place 16 years ago, and where you are today. You know, as you're talking, Anderson has a, what's called Anderson Center International. So we have a fellowship program where professionals from many other countries throughout the world come to Anderson for usually 12 to 18 months. They do a long-term uh, training with us where they're on our campus and they're training and um, interacting with our students and adults and they're learning from our staff. And then we, we do some activities with them. We learn a lot from them um, in terms of what's happening Absolutely. and what kind of resources are available in their home countries. And then they leave us, which is bittersweet because we get very attached to our fellows. Uh, But the sweet part of it is that many of them are going back to countries after doing a real deep dive training, not kind of a couple hours in a, in a classroom. They're really living it for 12 to 18 months. And then they're going back to their home countries. And many of them are then starting programs that have never existed before. So we, we have, I think, that similar view of the need for for a longer period of time to spend with somebody um, to really change. I mean, what you're talking about doing is you go in and, and you're sort of changing some things or, or asking people to look at even their own children um, or children that they may teach in a very brand new way. You, you spoke before about how in Ghana, the, the idea, the, the ingrained idea and thought was that people with autism were possessed. Yeah. That sadly yeah. is something I've heard from some of our fellows from not just Ghana, sure. but from several countries. And there have yeah. been some horrific stories. I know you have a story that impacted you that I'd love for you to share about uh, some information that kind of came to the surface from, from uh, I think it was a mom that you um, that came to to one of your trainings. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to, 
you know, I think it's easy for us to say, oh, the, the people over there think the kids are possessed. That's not all the people, right? right? And I think the people who partner with us are the people who know that that's not true. They know that that's not um, the case for their own child or children they work with. And it's, it's really, you know, I really honestly have the best job in the world. I get to literally work with some of the best people in the world who are committed to sustainable change. And that importance of sustainability when it comes to training, that importance of ongoing support is really, really clear to us, especially as we meet more and more people around the world who have had these, you know, and I love that you guys bring people in for a longer-term thing, um, for longer-term training. You know, there are kids who are getting a year and a half older while people are away for longer-term training. Yeah. And so that, that's the challenge, I think, um, for us. And, and obviously we're set up in a different way, but that's why we want to go to people where they are. And I think the other piece of that is really understanding really having a deep understanding of why they do things the way they do. And I'll, I'll share a story with you that um, several years back, a colleague of mine was working in Peru, and she spoke with um, she spoke with a mom there. She met a mom who had said, oh, we've, been, you know, we've had some training. Somebody had come down and essentially done a one-hit wonder training, as I call it, um, which, you know, and you don't, you don't really know what the long-term effects of that are. And most people who do them don't stay and get to know the community to know. We get to hear about that all the time through the relationships that we built. So she explained that the trainer had taught the community that they shouldn't tie children up. And at the surface, we can all agree that that's, that's a good lesson to take away. Mm -hmm. But what the trainer had not addressed was the why. What the trainer had not asked is, why are you tying your son up? Mm -hmm. And had they asked, they would have learned that mom wanted to keep her kids safe. And now we're all suddenly the same. We all want to keep our kids safe. We can all relate to that, right? Mm -hmm. And because she hadn't learned a better way to keep him safe, she burned the bottoms of his feet to keep him from running away from home. Mm. So... It's one of those things that I think is really, really important to get because international training and international travel and, you know, a quick perusal through LinkedIn or conversations at a conference, more and more people and with the Internet and social media, more and more people are saying, you know, I'd love to go um, and do this work internationally or, oh, we're going for a week. I'm going to pop by an autism center while I'm there. And that sort of thing concerns me. That sort of thing worries me. Um, you know, here in the States, we wouldn't be okay with someone just coming into our house and working with our kids for a week and we never see them again. Um, yet we're willing to do that for other countries. And I think it's important to think about that mom and that story because for on a couple of levels, one, that's a very dangerous thing to happen. But on another level, understand that all she's trying to do is the same thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to keep the kids safe. Right. Um, and I think that when you can when you can really understand that and really get that, it just gives you another level of of understanding and compassion, really. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I I appreciate the story that you told. You know, I guess that the thing that's occurring to me is that that it's I mean, it's important that that mother shared that it's unfortunate that during the initial training that that there was not a recognition perhaps because of time i mean you don't want to vilify the trainer they were probably in there trying to do a good thing um but the idea that that we didn't allow time or there wasn't time to figure out why that was happening is definitely concerning but also very important that i think that mother shared that story and that you're sharing it here um i think more people have to understand uh and to hear that there is this Commonality, I think, among all 
family, all parents, whether your child is on the autism spectrum, is struggling with another challenge, is neurotypical, whatever, you know, whatever it is, it's it's parents. Parents want to keep their children safe. Safety is one of those universal things. Right. And, And I think the reason I made a tie earlier, and I certainly wasn't trying to say that everybody in an entire country or an entire community or even within the same family has the same, has the same beliefs. But I think that there is a connection when you're, when you're living in a community where there is any sort of stigma, where there is any sort of sense that what's, what's happening with your child is somehow bad or scary or, you know, should be hidden for whatever reason it might be. Um, people are going to be less likely to tell those stories. People are going to be less likely to say, I'm at the point where the only thing I can think of is to burn the bottoms of my child's feet so yeah. that he doesn't run away. And that, I think, is at the core of, of hopefully what, what you guys are addressing through Global uh, Autism Project and what um, we can all do just by talking about the realities that this is not, you know, um, I'm teaching my child how to, how to wear, you know, that it's important to, to wear their seatbelt. Not that that's not important. It's extraordinarily important. And where there are seatbelts and there are vehicles and you're putting a child in a vehicle all the time, that is very important. But at the level of I don't have any other resources except this, which many people would say, oh, my goodness, how could you think to do that? It's not about judgment. We have to let go of the judgment. and We have to really think about exactly, well, something brought that parent to make that decision. So let's try to figure out what that is. So I just wanted to kind of take a minute and and go there, I guess, with this, because these stories, the worst place for these stories to live is in the in the unsaid world. Um, The worst place is for people to just not talk about it. So I appreciate both what you're doing and also the fact that you told that story. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Is there anything um, what, what is it as a founder and CEO, you're, you're in this position where there wasn't the global autism project and now there is, and I'm sure that you have <laughs> continue to have hopes for the future and for getting it throughout the world. But what do you, when you think specifically about the people who go through the, who travel with you and who make that commitment yeah. and maybe go once or maybe go nine times, whichever it is, what do you really hope that at the end of the, their time with you, what do you want them to take away from their experience? What do you want them to live with for the rest of their lives and maybe share with their children? That's a great question. And it has nothing to do with clinical work and everything to do, I think, with human potential. For a lot of people, $5,000 is the most money they ever fundraised. And they've shocked themselves that they've done that. For a lot of people who travel with us, they've never flown internationally. And they shock themselves when they've done that. And, you know, we by design created a program that's very rich in both personal and professional growth. Because what I want people to take away is their human potential and their infinite human potential. And that if they can imagine it and they can do it, they, they, can, they can make it happen. Um, and I think that's one of the coolest things to me is seeing the people who go off and start their own business because they feel like, you know what, I can do this now. We've had a number of people who do things like that. Um, where they've never flown in a plane internationally and now they travel, now they're solo travelers around the world, you know? So that's really the biggest thing. I think it's just taking away that, that this is possible, that if the global autism project is possible, whatever you're dreaming is possible. That's really awesome. 
great answer. And I love that. I, I talk on the show all the time about the fact that we, um, we, we all have our challenges. We're all doing different things professionally and personally in our lives, but pretty much all of us still remember the difference between right and wrong. And what you're doing is you're providing an opportunity for people to, in a really kind of cool, adventurous, sort of self-fulfilling way to figure out another great way to do something right in the world. So I love that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, thank you for definitely. what you're doing. We have less than a minute. Can you share some information? Where can people go to get more information about Global Autism Project and maybe getting involved? Yeah, absolutely. You can visit our website, globalautismproject.org. You can hopefully just Google Global Autism Project at this point. We're the only one. And the program is specifically called Skill Core. There's links to it on our homepage. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. And is there an age? Do you have to be a certain age in order to um, apply to, to get into Skill Core? We, most of the people who, two questions. One, you have to be 20. Um, and most people who travel are in their late 20s, early 30s. But okay. anybody's welcome. We've had people in their 50s and early 20s for sure. All right. Well, good to know. Um, so, again, let's uh, make sure people go check this out and get a little more information, globalautismproject.org. Yeah, and Molly Olapenny, I really wish you the absolute best. You've got a great story. It sounds really exciting. And um, and I hope that you that little voice that you still heard in that first uh, that first clip is it remains with you because it certainly is something that should spread through throughout the world, um, and hopefully this uh, this will help get more people involved. So again, globalautismproject.org. Molly Olapini, founder and CEO of Global Autism Project, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. This is One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 